1: Good afternoon and welcome. Canada has failed in its duty to protect vulnerable elders in long term care both before and during the pandemic. We just heard that in Jeremy's news, and that's the conclusion of the latest report on our long term care system from the Royal Society of Canada. And it confirms what we know from previous reports that we have the worst record for deaths in long-term care in the Western world with 81% of coronavirus fatalities in that sector. According to the study, as you also heard in in Jeremy's news, this stems from systemic and deeply institutionalized implicit attitudes about age and gender. So, about ageism and sexism. And also, now that the outbreaks in nursing homes are coming under control and some visiting has resumed, there's a growing outcry about the restrictions on visitors and the need to recognize family caregivers as such. We'd like to hear from you, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 Forty, and now it's time for our Zoomer Squad, including Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Happy Monday. Happy
2: Monday.
1: Hi. 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 Okay, so uh, we've seen this report. It came out on Friday. Uh, To me, it, it basically says the same thing as the others that we've seen, Marissa. So
3: it it does. I mean, we, it, this is sort of what advocates have have been saying for some time. I mean, it's 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 also consistent with decades worth of panels, task forces, reports that have come out about the state of long term care in Canada and our sort of neglect of the sector and the need to prepare for an aging population um i thought that they were very blunt in their language um and you know it's like anything governments they they have a budget they set priorities and they fund pro- projects based on what is important to them. And it's clear that when it comes to long-term care and prever- preparing for the health needs of an aging population, governments have rationed health care resources based on age. They've not invested in long-term care. They've not sufficiently invested in home care. Yes, they committed $6 billion in, you know, the last budget or two budgets, I guess, was it last year or the year before, over 10 years for home care initiatives. Okay, but there's still a huge gap between what's needed and what is being provided. Um, And we know that from our own members, at least a quarter have to pay out of pocket for additional care because the publicly funded supports are insufficient. Many cannot even afford to do that. Um, so, I guess to answer your question, Libby, yeah, I mean, this is this is consistent with what we know, but I think that their language is very direct, and very blunt, and it's important for our leaders to read.
1: David, uh, so what so what are we learning here that we didn't know, if anything? Well, I think
2: I, I think it's the meticulous documentation. Now, you, the most one of the most depressing things in this whole study. I, it might sound weird, is the footnote at, at the end where they list over 100 reports made to both federal and provincial governments. And you read the titles of these reports, Taking Better Care of Seniors, Failure is Not an Option, Toward a Brighter Future, The Way Forward. And you look at the dates, 2005, 2007, 2010. It's like a documentation of warning after warning after warning and the blunt truth is we are where we are because that's what they wanted and that's the most shocking thing to me what if it really is the result of an attitude that says we're just not going to throw any money at this these people are old these people are going to die soon anyway we're going to take a eyes wide open minimalist approach to dealing with this and that to me is the most shocking thing in this report
1: well David, that, that almost sounds like
2: a conspiracy theory. Well, I don't know if it's a conspiracy. They talked about deep-seated attitudes. I don't think they all got together in a room back in 2004, because that's a lot of different people from a lot of different places. But I think if, if that's the prevailing attitude, if that's a pervasive attitude, that's what this report does, I think, that's that's maybe a little bit different. It documents it with just agonizing detail, how neglectful they have been in the face of clear information that they ignored.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Peter, it it makes you wonder. I think that the Ontario Commission is set to start this week. You know, I I mean, you've got to wonder, what what is the point of that? And I know that, that Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader, wanted a public inquiry, but... Do we need more reports? And, and what do you think?
4: Well, I mean, we we've had a hundred already. Maybe one hundred and one might do something. I, I don't know. Um, the the uh, what I find uh, new about this report is, I mean, we all know, uh, you know, what what the problems are. Um, anyone who's covered this sector for a while knows exactly what the problems are. Anyone who's visited these homes knows what the problems are. But this one is saying, um, look. We have a duty of care to these people. Are we going to decide um, that we're going to give them a level of care that just sort of gets by, that that covers their basic needs until they die? Or are we going to give them a level of care that we give to everyone else in society? And and that's the big question in, in this report. That's what this report is calling on. And, um, you know, that's going to take a lot of political will and a lot of dollars and uh, a lot of leadership. And I I don't see those coming from the Ontario, um, you know, Commission on on Long-Term Care.
1: One of the things this report and others have called for is the need for national
3: standards. Would that solve it, Marissa? I think it's one piece of the puzzle. And certainly... uh, there have been studies now in in the COVID era, um, looking at what can what Canadians think on this subject, and and overwhelmingly, it's close to ninety percent say that they're in favor of you know bringing long term care under the Canada Health Act, which would then necessitate national standards, and it would also create an environment of shared funding. <clears throat> and that is one of the missing pieces of the Canada Health Act actually and whether it's you bring it under the Canada Health Act or it's you establish its own act because you don't want to open up the CHA okay either way you bring it into to you know federal jurisdiction to some extent, insofar as they provide funding and there's a bit of a leadership role to set set national standards, I think that is one important element in trying to fix this system. But you also need to look at it from a holistic perspective. Um, It can't just be about the buildings. It can't just be about the institutions, because only 5% of Canadians over the age of 65 are actually in long-term care homes. A lot of people can't even afford to go there. It's still a fairly expensive... Um, endeavor. It's not, I'm not even just talking about retirement homes. I mean, the the government subsidized ones is still expensive. Runs you two to three thousand dollars a month. Um, so we need to be looking at alternatives. We need to be looking at alternative housing solutions. We need to be investing in home care, of course. Um, but yeah, I think, and this is something that CARB is on the record for is is calling for national standards because because there shouldn't be a discrepancy in the care you. Receive based on your postal code,
1: Peter. Uh, again, uh, national standards. Do you think that will provide a solution, or do we need something more?
4: Well, national standards. I mean, great, but who's going to enforce them? You know, and who's going to who's going to follow up to make sure the homes are following them? Who's going to you know punish the homes for not following them? You know. Um, I think everyone, everyone sort of knows exactly what the recipe here is, but no one, there, there's no impetus to, to make people follow it, and, and that's what we need—a big change in leadership at the top. And if it comes from a federal minister or, or a federal um, bureaucracy, then, then good. But I, I have my doubts about the, the federal government's ability to run this.
1: What about the whole question of public versus private, David?
2: Well, I think that I, I think that before you even get into that, Marissa touched on this, as did Peter. What are you trying to do in the first place? And I think that to fix what's broken, okay, well, we got too much private. Take the money away from them, put it into public. There's other there's other things you've got to do first. And one of the things I found interesting in this report that was maybe a little different. Was they pointed out, for example, that since the system was first designed, and they trace it all the way back to the Poor Laws of
4: yeah, Elizabeth in yeah. England, rather yeah.
2: than to the healthcare. System. Uh, but since since the system was first designed, um, people are going into long term care at older and older ages. It's we know that, yes. Static. It's not. It's not static. It's very fluid. And I know last week, Libby, we all. Talked about how the demand is going to double because of the aging of the population. So they've got to fix something at a time when the landscape is changing as well. I think public versus private is a vital topic, but if it becomes its own argument, its own topic, let's solve this whole thing, and it doesn't involve a system-wide look at everything, Uh, then it's just going to be another Band-Aid and we're going to think that we fixed it. all good. We've taken money away from those greedy private entrepreneurs and put it into public. But you're, you're putting it into public. You're putting it in the hands of the people that let this whole thing turn into the nightmare it was in the first place. And who are these people that are running it and do they have any competence to fix it? And I'm with Peter on that, I'm afraid.
3: Well okay so and I and I and I agree I, also logistically it might be difficult to uh, what do you do with the existing in Ontario for example 60% of homes or long term care homes are privately run so are they grandfathered what do you do with them I do think there needs to be more scrutiny over who is, qualifies as an operator of long term care because to get a license it's It's a fairly easy process. I mean, you need to have you need to show that just six residents are not related to the operator. There needs to be a building with a certain capacity. But there's nothing that that scrutinizes the individual that's setting up this institution. Do they have the ability to properly care? For these residents, that will be overwhelmingly people with cognitive impairment and very high needs. But I do want to go back to just what Peter said around well, who's going to be uh, overseeing these standards? Of course in the creation of national standards, and if you were to bring it under the Canada Health Act or it has its own act, funding would be contingent on meeting those standards, and every province and territory would have to continue to do that. And maybe there's an oversight panel that ensures those standards are being met. That would all come under bringing it under the Canada Health Act and taking that sort of holistic approach to this.
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, pretty simply, if those national standards involve things like staffing and levels of competence and that kind of thing uh, i would think that if there's no room for profit in those standards then right. the for profit operators will just get out of the business that, that has
3: been said that it's it, you're you're right it, it, it would likely um it would likely lead to a number of people just not seeing the benefit, the benefit of being in the sector. All the more reason why we need to be investing in alternative model, models of care. Well, not not seeing uh, the, see uh, the, the benefit that to be, too is
4: not, that a lot of these homes are um, built with a you know a um, a retirement uh, living aspect, and then it, you know with the convenience of moving right into long-term care right in the right on the premises. So. Um, that's why they're running it. They're not they're not running long term care to make money. They're they're running it to um as a carrot for these people to move into their their retirement residence with the goal that one day they will move into long term care.
1: Uh, yeah, and the the other thing is, I mean, I know uh, people in the sector who say that say the province came to power, the Queens at Queens Park, the Conservatives came to power, promising you know fifteen, thirty thousand new long term care beds. There are people who say that model is is. Uh, is is not right it's uh it's it's really wrong-headed to focus on the building as opposed to the care in some kind of congregate living sector and and you know the amount of money that has to go to the buildings will take away from the care
3: Mm -hmm. the
2: building should flow from an understanding of what the whole thing means starting with home care so if i'm 65 years old to just take the, the age that, say, pensions kick in, not necessarily an old age any longer, but if you just start there arbitrarily, and you say that, what am I going to do with people for the next 30 years in their life, um, or more, if, it, if they live that long, and centenarians are the fastest growing section of the population in percentage terms, and you look at the whole thing, then you say, what's the role for living at home? What's the role for sending in uh, workers into the home where you don't need acute medical treatment. Now you get a little older, a bit more medical treatment. Now toward the end of life, you need 24/7 medical treatment. If you look at the whole continuum, then the role of the big building, the quasi hospital building, finds its role as part of an overall system. Instead of looking at each component. As a separate uh, silo, and that's that's the mistake they've made, or that's the, the, they haven't done the, the the view of the whole thing.
1: Okay, uh, Alexis has been waiting very patiently to talk about something uh, that's quite different from this topic. So we'll take a call from Alexis and Markham. Hello. Hello Libby, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to
3: let you know that, you know, the government had said for seniors they would be putting that money into their account. I was under the impression on the 6th of July, Mm -hmm. I just checked my account, it has nothing in it.
1: Okay, well they said, I think they said the week of the 6th, but um, yeah, that's good to know. Alexis, Marissa, you were
3: going to weigh in on that? Sure. So. Are are you set up for direct deposit? Yes, I am. So I would check back maybe the end of the day because it's my understanding that for those that are um, set up for direct deposit, it will be re- arriving in your accounts today. And then um, for those that... You know, there there may be some that receive the check by mail, in which case there could be further delays there. But that's, that would be good information to know. Uh, so please let me, maybe you can shoot me an email. Or yeah, let I, know I'll you let you see. know if I check later today. Or mm-hmm. even tomorrow, I could, you know, certainly update you if anything arrives. We want to know, mm-hmm. I certainly would. And may I make one quick comment? Sure. I just wanted to say both uh, Melissa and David, I still agree with everything you have said. I just feel that the government never made the elderly um, a priority. And I believe it was almost a well-orchestrated plan so that they put money over people's lives.
1: That's a pretty damning indictment. Alexis, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I'd like to return to uh, another aspect of long-term care, and this, this has really uh, been bothering a lot of our listeners since nursing homes opened up for visits for these very limited visits. And And this morning, you know, when I got here, our morning newscaster, Andy Johnson, was waving around his negative test so he could go see his mother-in-law, but the requirements are for... Family members who want to see their loved ones are more stringent than for the people working in the care homes more closely. They have to have these tests every two weeks. Sometimes the test result hasn't come back in enough time to make the visit. And this, even though the visits are distant and everybody is wearing a mask, and they're half an hour visits that do not recognize the caregiving role of families.
3: That's right. So many family members are, are not just there to to have a chat with their loved one in these facilities. They often provide very direct hands-on care, whether that's supporting them um, in, in getting changed or, or helping them use a washroom, because we know that these homes are so uh, under staffed, if a family feels that their loved ones needs are being neglected, often they'll step in and, and it's not exactly fair that that, that, that responsibility get passed to family caregivers, but it is what it is. And, and many families feel the need to do that and have to do that. Um, and so, you know, the government easing restrictions but making it so that they can't even so much as touch their loved one and, and can only visit them twice between negative tests and for only 30 minutes at a time, um, it may somewhat address the the issue around isolation, though it's it's by no means a sufficient amount of time to spend with a loved one. But in no way does it support a family member from being able to care for their loved ones in those facilities. Well, and the other thing,
1: David, is... Everyone I've spoken to who has had the opportunity to visit with a loved one says they are deteriorated, sometimes very seriously. How is that going to be addressed? They're not going to. They can't address it.
2: I mean, you're quite right. We've had that uh, lady that was, uh, I think, two weeks in a row phoned in with progress on visiting her husband, and was very distressed at how badly he had deteriorated. It was a heartbreak, two heartbreaking phone calls I can remember as uh, recently as last week. They can't address it because what they're doing now, in my opinion, and I'm not, you know, trying to point a finger, they're 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 dealing with optics now. They're dealing with disaster control and with optics. And they the dominant optic right now is I can't make it look like I'm encouraging more infection. In these homes, so I'm going to be draconian, whether it makes sense or not, whether it works for everybody or not. At least I'm going to make sure that I can be seen to be doing everything possible to avoid further infection, and that's what's driving it. And it's a strictly it's a short-term um, expediency. I'm not, uh, you know, saying that it has no role, but clearly they're not thinking through all the variations and permutations of caregivers. We've also had a call with people who needed one person to help them because it might be a spouse who has mobility issues, can't get to the home or can't get to the uh, loved one without leaning on someone's shoulder, literally, and that second person isn't allowed to be there. So there's a whole bunch of uh, realities that they're not taking into account because uh, infection is the only thing driving it. And even then, uh, they can't prove that it's working.
1: Well, and, and Peter, you know, one of the things that that some people have said is, number one, it's open to abuse because it's totally up to the care home to decide, are they mm-hmm. equipped to do this or not? And, you know, speaking of ageism, nobody has asked Residents, older people, what they want, and this has been pointed out by a number of geriatricians, they would probably be willing to take mm-hmm. a small bit of extra risk to be with their loved ones.
4: Yeah, um, it, it's it comes right from the bureaucracy. It has no... It has no reflection on what the residents' needs are or the family caregiver's needs are. It's, it's purely a bureaucratic measure that covers their back and um, makes it look like they're opening the homes, but they're not really. And as a result, it's pleasing no one.
3: And, and just to sort of add add on to that, to give sort of a, a picture of what this looks like maybe for your listener, I mean, imagine being a family member of someone in long-term care you've not seen them for 90 plus days um, maybe that individual has has dementia suffers from a number of other maybe comorbidities needs support hasn't been receiving it Libby you mentioned um you know your caller mentioned that that uh they just looked deflated when she when she went and visited the home for the first time and now you're you're being well. You're being led into this home, but not really. You have to sit outside for the most part. You're sitting maybe ten feet away from your loved one. You're not allowed to so much as touch their hand. Um, you notice there's something wrong with them. Maybe they've lost weight or whatever. And imagine the feeling that you have. And all you want to do is wrap your arms around that individual, and you can't. Um, so it's 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 really it's a devastating situation that we're in. And and again, I understand the the province is wanting to be cautious here but at the same time i mean it's leading to the destruction of lives
1: and again uh, just to bring it up does does this show that in terms of ageism you know the the people running these places have learned nothing through this or am well, i being for, well,
2: too sure? well no i i think no, it's
1: absolutely sure right.
2: being absolutely yeah. right there because and the problem is that it even in the word long term care residents We all understand that in a short-term situation, in a hospital with an acute problem, surgery, let's say, okay, that's the week they're going in for their surgery. They're going to be in hospital for X amount of time. It's an aberration to the norm. You can't visit. You can gradually visit. You can never visit. This is your daily life. And they're not thinking through what that means, they're lucky to get through a day from the point of view of the operator with nothing terrible happening, with under-trained staff. I think the Royal uh, Society reports that up to 90% of the people who are who are providing patient care are not trained at all, or minimally trained, A whole other topic. Uh, they're happy to just mechanically get through it without the roof caving in as it has done. And so nobody's thinking about any of these topics whatsoever. And as Marissa said, it's a devastating situation.
1: Okay, uh, we're basically out of time. So uh, where does this leave us, Marissa?
3: Well, it, it leaves us, you know, no better off than we were last week or the or the week before. I mean, I think as the provinces start to ease restrictions, we need to take a very careful look at what's happening in these homes. Um, and we can't band-aid solution at this time. I mean, we have to fully address the issue of a population that's aging and whose needs are not being met. And we have to to be investing in our long-term care homes because they are chronically underfunded, chronically understaffed, uh, undertrained, and it's a disaster. So we need to move forward in a way that's positive um, and not one that just maintains the status quo because it is no longer acceptable. David? It's never acceptable.
2: I agree completely. I'd like to turn it around, the glass is half full, and it leaves us a little better off, because if we start recognizing some of these uh, uncomfortable realities, some of these things that people don't want to talk about out loud, oh my goodness! What if this was deliberate, not necessarily malicious, but deliberate, that, hey, we haven't got enough money for these people, they're going to die soon anyway, and if we have to stand up now and say, no, we're not going to allow that to be driving it anymore, and reports like this, plus the work that CARP is doing to agitate for media change, as long as we throw light onto these problems, maybe we can move the ball forward and, and, and get to a solution. Peter?
4: It, it, the the report had a, a very poignant line in it. It said um, those older adults who died deserved a good closing phase of their lives mm-hmm. and a good death, and we failed them. So that that's a clarion call right now to fix the system and uh, repair the damage and do it as sort of a memorial to those who died in covid
1: Okay, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye. buddy. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.